anxiety help us perform at the highest level? When is it a hindrance? And when is it a help? Former opera singer Jane Kamak joins me, Yang Mei Ui, to talk about nerves, anxiety and singing and what we can learn from the world of opera performance to channel performance anxiety. This is The Anxiety Advantage, the podcast that asks, how can we thrive in an age of anxiety? I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster. I'm not an expert on anxiety. I have no medical or therapy type qualifications. I'm a writer. And like many people, I have struggled with anxiety. My purpose in these podcasts is to explore with curiosity how these very human feelings affect all our lives. Views expressed by my guests are entirely their own and do not represent my views. My guest today is Jane Kamak. Jane spent the early years of her creative career as an opera singer. She sang at Carnegie Hall in New York, Glyndebourne and the English National Opera in the UK and La Scala in Milan. She's currently a writer and lives in Oxfordshire. Jane Kamak, when you first started out in your singing career, you would have had to have gone to auditions and to get into music school and eventually more auditions for productions. What was that like? Yes, it was full of lots of anxiety, I think. It's when I first started, I think probably the anxiety started beforehand. And that was when I was at school. I think when I was about 17, I was in sixth form and they decided that we all had to go and have a chat to the careers teacher. And so I went along and I said to her that I had this idea that I'd like to try to get into music college because, you know, if I could manage that, then, you know, that would be a, a sign that I could carry on. She looked quite sort of dark and she looked at me a bit horrified. And she said, no, I think you'd be much better off as a primary school teacher. And I was quite shocked at this because <laughs> I didn't particularly like school and the thought of spending the rest of my life, I just didn't really see that. I think that was the problem. So anyway, the next day I was called into the headmistress's office and she sort of looked at me with her cold grey eyes and said that she'd heard about this idea that I had and she said that she didn't think it was a good idea at all. Um, she said that I lacked the total dedication needed to become an opera singer. Oh no. Yes, and I was I was shocked and horrified and quite upset by it because I thought well if she thinks that then maybe I don't know myself, maybe she knows me better than I do and maybe I'm an imposter. I'm trying to do something that that I shouldn't be trying to do. So I sort of went home in a bit of a state and sort of told my parents this and they said, "Well, then you can't give up before you've even tried." They said, "Do the audition." see what happens if you don't get in then you rethink so in the end that's what i decided to do but you know you still you, you do still feel a bit awkward as if you're trying to do something that that maybe you shouldn't yeah so you've got your teacher saying one thing that you'll be no good as an opera singer but your parents were very supportive and that was fantastic because sometimes one can give our authority away to these authority figures the head teacher she must know what she's talking about so it it's quite easy to believe those negative voices and internalize them but fantastic that your parents were supportive so you went along to the audition now what was that like having those two competing voices in your head it was very 
Yes, it was very difficult, very worrying. And I felt I was, I really had to try and prove myself. Almost a, a sort of a desire to, I'll show you, I can do this. But then the, on the other side, there is always this little voice saying, you know, what do you think you're doing? You're not good enough. So, and it was quite strange when I arrived at the Royal College of Music, there were a sort of group of us that were to audition. And they put us in a room with the repetitor who was going to play for us so that we could practice the music with him. But it meant that we all heard each other sing. And that was incredibly nerve-wracking because one of them, she was absolutely brilliant. And I remember listening to her thinking, what am I doing here? She's fantastic. So, but I sort of pulled myself together and went in there and enjoyed myself and sang and enjoyed the songs and arias that I'd prepared. And I got a place and they gave me a, a scholarship. I was an exhibitioner, so it was a type of scholarship. And so, so... Yes, it worked out. Mm. It's quite easy, isn't it, for us to compare ourselves to others and not to compare ourselves in a way of, oh, I'm much better than her. You, it's just an, a natural instinct to compare yourself in a way that does yourself down. Oh, yeah. She's so much better than me. And then to try and go in there and sing and do your best. I was struck by what you said, that you enjoyed the experience, that you enjoyed the singing. Is there something about trying to just enjoy the moment rather than thinking all these competitive thoughts that perhaps helped you? Yes, I think as soon as you start, and obviously if your voice is working quite well, then you can, you can really enjoy the moment and enjoy the performing because it's not just singing the notes, it's being the person, being the character. And, and that's what you have to do. You've got to become that. If you're singing Carabino in the Marisha Figaro, you've got to be sort of full of passion as he is. And so, so yes, you can, you should be able to enjoy it, I think, and that, because that will come across to the audience as well. Yes. And I suppose that's about being present to the music, to the character, to the moment. I, I'm very struck by performers, particularly opera singers, because of course, everything it's all about your body, your voice, your throat, your breath, and anxiety manifests itself in tense muscles, tense breath. How do you manage all that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it does. It's, yes, if you tighten up, it's, well, it's all part of the work you do also with the singing teacher is trying to relax everything, trying to breathe properly that will help you, You're trying to place the voice. That's, you sort of learn all these techniques, which I suppose is the same as a sportsman, a tennis player. They will practice for hours every day. They'll be practicing their serves and volleys and just as a, as an opera singer will be practicing scales up here. All the, the technique that will help you when you become very nervous. And nerves have their place, do you think, in performance? Yes. Do you know, it was really funny. I was listening to Radio 4 this morning and Adele was speaking and she said she is crippled still with anxiety and just this crippling fear before she goes on stage. And she said that she thinks that you need it because it means that you care about what you're doing. And she thinks that if you haven't got that, then the performance isn't the same. And I thought that was very interesting. I love that, that you care so much. Your anxiety is telling you you care so much because mm. I guess the alternative is you kind of walk on the stage and you sing a little bit and it's not really, there's no energy in it. And so actually then that's a really flat performance. Yes, that's, that's what she was saying. She, was, she actually sort of mentioned various performances that she goes to and she says that then she's disappointed because of this very sort of lacklustre and you need that edge. And I think nerves will give you edge. I mean, a bit like somebody who goes into for an interview 
a job interview, again, they'll be nervous before they go in. And as long as you're very well prepared, the nerves should help you. It's a kind of energy you can use it, turn it Channel into energy. It. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, you have performed in some of the great arenas of opera around the world. What's that like? Oh, it was very exciting, very exciting. I mean, you just look at these opera houses and I mean, La Scala was just fantastic. That was a dream when I arrived there. And it's, and there is this energy in the opera house. There's music as soon as you, as soon as you walk in, because there'll be somebody practicing somewhere, rehearsals going on in the, the main theatre as well. It's fairly grotty backstage. It's not beautiful. There, there was a Cambusa, which is a bar down, downstairs where we'd go for coffee. And yes, not beautiful, but it was so exciting to be there near the famous opera singers sitting there having a cappuccino and <laughs> and the ballet dancers sort of standing in a row at the bar. It was so that was it, I, th that was wonderful. That was I'm I'm quite tickled to hear that the backstage in La Scala is a bit grotty because from my little experience of the theatre when I did Bound Feet Blues in the Tristan Bates Theatre, which is a small 70-seat theatre in central London. I remember thinking, oh, wow, I'm going to be on the stage, I'm going to be in the theatre. And then you walk into the dressing room and you think, oh, this is a bit grotty, where's the glamour? <laughs> so it's quite nice to know that actually for you guys in La Scala, you've got the same experience. Oh, yes, absolutely. It was, it's not plush at all. <laughs> It really isn't. So what is it like then? It's opening night and you're ready or you've got your costumes, you're all, you've got your cues and you're standing there in the wings, ready to go. That must be nerve wracking. Oh, yes. Gosh, it is. Very often there would be, it would obviously depend on what we were performing. I remember when I was at, at Sadler's Wells and we were doing Gilbert and Sullivan and there'd be sort of a group of us and we'd be dancing and psyching ourselves up in the wings and getting ready. And it's that energy. And then we go on stage. And then once you're on stage, that sort of energy as you start and you don't look back. There are other times when it's a little bit more difficult. I remember when it was Parsifal at, at La Scala and I was one of the few flower maidens and we were singing with Plaster Domingo and they had this sort of t load of tunnels on across the stage and we all had to enter by our own tunnel. And so there was a musical cue and you were just thinking on the night, I can't mess up. I can't. You are nervous because you've got this, these huge, great heavy robes on this dress with great long sleeves. And we had these long wigs on and, and you're trying to go up these stairs and then come onto the stage <laughs> looking graceful and singing. And it's, yeah, so that was quite scary. So in, in that moment, you're on your own, you have to go down this tunnel, you mustn't miss your cue. Yeah. And all these thoughts going through your head. And you emerge from the darkness into the lights of the stage. And you have to be on like that. Yes, absolutely. And you've got to, yes, and you've got to find your voice and sing and, and you can be heard. Because they, particularly if it's just a very small group, and it's such a big stage as well that every voice counts. And so it's, it, it was scary. But you have to somehow, it's mind over matter. It's just telling yourself, I can do this. And so you can't, as part of the chorus or part of the, the chord opera, you can't just go, oh, well, it's all right. Somebody else will carry me. You, your voice is as important. And I think you were telling me about how the conductor was... Oh, yes, Ricard, he was, during rehearsals, I mean, he would say, right, flower maidens, stay behind after, when everyone else had gone. And he would walk along 
the line. There were just, I think there were six of us and he would come along and he would stop and listen to every voice, which is ter- absolutely terrifying. Because I mean, he is such a, an incredible maestro. They call him maestro. And you, you have to be good. And so also, I guess there's the additional pressure that if you're not good, then you've messed it up for Placido. Yes. Because everybody will be focusing on your croak. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. And it's, and it was the, the first night of the, the, the opera season. They, on the 7th of December in Milan, it is the feast of the patron saint Sant'Ambrogio. And they have lots of markets and they have the Beo Bay markets. And, and La Scala is, that's when they, they have the first night, the opening. And so there were lots of really famous people there. I think actually Princess Diana was there that night. It was, oh, there was lots of sort of sparkling out in the audience. <laughs> so what was, a fantastic experience. And I know I've sort of focused our minds on the pressures and the stress of it all. Has there any time, has there ever been a time when you felt, oh God, I really cannot do this? Yes, so you're relating to sort of voice and... Yeah, in, in the moment of all the pressure of the conductor checking out on your voice, robes, the, the whole thing. And not just put necessarily in this particular scenario, but generally when I hear of people who just can't take it anymore. How have you felt or how have you noticed in terms of those people that you might have come across? Yes, I, yes, I do understand. I think it is a huge amount of pressure. And also because you don't lead a very normal life because you're working really when everyone else is. You're working the weekends and the evenings. You've got a rehearsal in the morning. You're f- probably free in the afternoon. And it is very hard for a lot of people to keep going. There's always that pressure, always you've got to be good. Even if you've got a cold, you've got to somehow, you've got to sing through it. So it, yes, it is very hard and you've got to, you've got to really want to do it. And you've observed Pavarotti, the great man himself, oh, being yes. anxious behind, behind the scenes. Yes, he was always sort of, he had nasty throat sweets and sort of had his throat sort of wrapped up with scarves. And I know he used to say that it's quite a lonely life because he would arrive somewhere, he's got to sing. He's sitting in a hotel room by himself because you can't go to bed late, you can't be out drinking and you can't lead that sort of life. And so for him, it it was very important that he would be there on stage singing his best because that's what his fans wanted. People expect you to, well, to sing exactly like the records as well. That's another problem. Gosh, yes, of course, for someone in his position. And I guess it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, enjoying the moment, enjoying the song, enjoying being in the character and being passionate about what you're doing. And that carries you through with that additional energy of the nerves and wanting to do the best you can. Yes, definitely. And I think with somebody like Pavarotti, Plaster Domingo, the nerves, they are always nervous. As I was saying about Adele as well, it's, it, there's always nerves. Probably sportsmen as well, they probably experience the same sort of thing, the nerves before they, but once you start, that's the... It does seem to be a strange life to choose to spend one's working career full of nerves. But I guess it's about the passion, the purpose. I really want to do this, so I'm going to put up with the nerves. And I think in my ordinary life, just to relate it to the wider audience, I think that is the case. Because if there's something you don't really want to do and 
you're, you feel this tension, these nerves. You, it's so easy just to go, oh, I don't really want to do that. But if you really want to do something, for me, recently, I started kayaking and I, we have to do these capsized drills and you're turned upside down in the kayak and we do things like we sort of, we went over a little baby weir and I was absolutely terrified. And there were a couple of times when I thought, no, oh, I, I think I'm not going to do this course anymore. It's just too horrible and it's all cold and wet. But then I thought, I love being out on the water. I love those beautiful summer evenings on the Thames and uh, seeing the ducks and being with this lovely bunch of kayakers. And so I thought, no. I'm going to I'm going to do this and actually it's a similar thing it's on a smaller scale but it's a similar feeling of I'm going to enjoy the moment I'm going to do this and I'm going to put up with the nerves and the being cold and wet and underwater for on occasion so that I can actually kayak Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I, oh gosh, I think you're brave <laughs> to go under the water. And oh gosh, but no, I understand exactly the sort of the similarity that you're, you're making that it's yes, it yes, it is strange. And it is hard. And sometimes you think, why have I chosen to do this? I could have made my life much, much easier. Why have I chosen this path? It's it does make everything you don't do wonder sometimes why. It's... So we've talked a, a lot about nerves. And in, in opera, as a, someone who just goes to, to see it and enjoy the music, you turn up and the singers come onto stage and they sing beautifully. They look fantastic. They're full of the passion of the different characters. The, the Rhine Maidens are beautiful. Carabino is full of passion and liveliness. But that is the result of months of preparation. It doesn't just happen spontaneously. And also for many of the great singers, and it's years of experience. So I want to look into the rehearsal process and how you, as how one as a singer becomes good enough to become a Pavarotti, a Domingo, or Jesse Norman. Yeah. So I, well, I think people like Cluster Domingo, Pavarotti, Jesse Norman. They have these God-given voices. And I think it's just everybody has a voice. And obviously, you can make it better. There are some people who just have, I think, an extraordinary physique or there's something inside their faces that makes this one incredible sound. So I think they are a real sort of rarity. But there are plenty of very good singers who work hard and become very excellent singers. So it is just slogging away and just sort of practicing. And you talked a lot about technique earlier on in our conversation. Yeah. And the training. Can we just dig into that a bit for so for us, because I'm I love the sort of backstage thing yes. that you we don't see as an audience. So what is that like to spend months preparing for a big opera? Well, yes, you start off with just the very sort of, just with the piano and just in a rehearsal room, and it'll be walking through the who comes on where, who goes off, you stand here, you sing, you so it's very much the mechanics of it. Very often the top singers, the top soloists, they don't sing out at that point because they're they sort of save their voice. So they they do what is called marking, which is where they just sing very lightly because it's too many hours a day of just con continuous singing. And then gradually they start to introduce costumes. And then there's the exciting thing is the first sort of sing through with the orchestra, which is very often <clears throat> is just without any moves. We will, there'll just be a, a sing through with the orchestra. Then it moves onto the stage and uh, that's where it starts to get really exciting. And that's when it sort of really begins to build. 
um, towards the, the first night. And during that process, I'm, I imagine that you must make a lot of mistakes, a lot of fluffs, a lot of trying different ways of staging a scene, but also, oh, you didn't sing this quite as how the conductor wanted, so you got to recalibrate. What is that process like? Well, they have notes. So they'll have the director will be sitting there and he has lots of assistants and they're taking notes the whole time during the rehearsals. And so there'll be a period afterwards of telling off, usually. <laughs> and it's then you all have to come in. You didn't do this correctly, you know, and people are pulled out and it's all sort of pointed out exactly. And you think, oh, right. And you've got to make sure that you don't do that again. So that, and it can also be encouraging as well. It's not all sort of telling off. It can be, oh, yes, that worked really well. Let's do it like that. Or so they're watching the whole time. And I think even actually when the performances start, there's usually somebody who's always watching. And if anything goes wrong, you will be or whoever will be called in and they'll will speak about it. And how do you cope with that process of being told off? And again, I'm trying to relate it to, for our listeners to yeah. real life, yes. that you, you try and do something and it doesn't quite go as you would hope. And someone tells you, well, actually, you should have done it this way. And how do we take that? Do we go, oh, I'm no good at this. I'm going to give up. And Or then the next time you do it, I have to do it perfectly. And of course, you fluff it again. And then the pressure, we internalise that pressure. How do you cope professionally with the professional telling off? Well, I think you do feel a bit depressed and you feel a bit rubbish. And, and But then you've got to, you've, you've got to do it. You have to turn that round. So usually it's only by thinking about what has been said. I think it's a bit like writing as well. You need thinking time when you go away and you sort of internalise and go through everything and try and find the solution, how what to work it out or go into a practice room and practice and sing and make sure it's right. Or if you've done made a move on, on the stage, that's you have to try and sort that out. And I'm assuming also not to take it personally. Yes, you have to try to, but it's but usually you do. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, and I think again, I'm what I'm what's coming into my head is team sports, and I'm hopeless at team sports as a child, uh, and because I felt I was letting people down because I was always butterfingers, and so netball, the ball would come to me, and my teammates would seem to be in my head watching me as I try and catch the ball, and oops. Lot of fingers, and they're going to go. Ah, that, that built yeah. up in my head, and so now, unfortunately, I hate team sports because I get that anxious feeling. Oh, I know exactly what you want to mean because you want to do a good job for everyone, for the whole company. You don't want to make any mistakes. I remember we had to we had to dance when I was doing the Golden Sullivan, and that was very difficult. That and that used to make me very anxious because not a dancer. And that was hard. I used to go off and spend hours and hours and hours practicing. That was quite scary. I think, again, it's probably there's a life lesson there in that I suspect that if I had gone off with my netball and practiced, got a friend to throw balls at me and I kept practicing catching it, then maybe I would have actually got a little bit better. You would. Yeah. Definitely. And similarly, you said you were very anxious about the dancing because you don't dance. But actually what you did... You went and practiced and got better at it. And so I think, again, anxiety gives us a clue Mm. of what we need to do. Yes. And we just need to listen to it and go, well, okay, I'm no good at this. I'm going to let them down. Oh, no, that's too terrible. Well, how can I solve it? How can I not let them down or, or let them down less than I would otherwise, which is go and practice, prepare, so on. Yes, absolutely. And 
my daughter works for Wiley, which which is the publishers, and they have a blunder club, which I think is quite interesting. And quite important high up people will come in and speak at this blunder club and speak about times that they really messed up and what they learned from it, how they recovered. And I think that's that's I very very interesting. That. I yeah. love that. <laughs> I think I might start the little blunder club of my own. Yes, exactly. Will you join me in my blunder club? Yeah, definitely, yes. I think it's a really good idea. Yes, we can chat every week about what we messed up with. Yes, oh yes. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so, do you dream of becoming a soloist? Maybe the next Maria Callas, perhaps. At which point did you realise maybe that's not going to happen? Oh, definitely. When I was younger, I you have this idea, you have this fixation in your head that that's what you want to do, you want to be the best. And I think you gradually realise that probably you're not good enough. Probably you wouldn't be able to handle that level of nerves constantly watching a lot of the soloists. It felt it seemed to me quite lonely as well, because there whereas I was sort of together with a big sort of group of people, they are flying off and going to different countries and different opera houses. And I think I just in the end decided that life was going to go in a different direction. And, but it is, it's quite hard to accept that because you do have these dreams, but it's, you are, life is full of little turns and curves and it changes. So... Did you find yourself, I don't know, feeling a failure or beating yourself up that you couldn't achieve what you had dreamt of achieving? Yes. For, I think for a certain time, definitely. I can't remember if I said this before, but my, my, my father always said that he sort of told us when I was younger that if anything doesn't go the way that you want it to and you're sad about anything, he said you can allow yourself to feel miserable for 15 minutes. And he said... I'll allow that. Then you have to pull yourself together and say, right, and get on and either change tack or have another go or whatever it takes. I love that. And I think when we last spoke about this, you said wallow, you allowed wallow time. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And I, yes. I love that. So in a way, actually, I love this, this, the very English thing that if someone has problem and they're sobbing at the kitchen table, you're, what you do, you have a sob and a wallow, then right, let's make a cup of tea. It always helps. It's always the answer. A nice cup of tea. Yes, because I think that it's the action. It's the getting up yeah. and changing your situation, yeah. getting up from the table, throwing away your tissues and going and filling the kettle. It's a little mindless routine, but it's an action that changes the state that you're in. And I suppose that's what your father very wisely is saying, that... Mm -hmm. Of course, we all have emotions and it's very important to acknowledge and be present to those emotions. So yes. cry if you need to. Yes. But the problem comes if you're stuck in that state for too long, because yes. then that leads to paralysis, depression and all the rest of it. And obviously, I'm simplifying. Yes, absolutely. And it can take you into a really dark tunnel. And I think then it can be quite difficult to actually come out of that. So as soon as you can, it's just better. It's better for you. And you're speaking from experience because you had a very dark point in your life. Would you sh share some of that with us and also describe how you emerged the other side? Yes. So I was married to an Italian and had two quite small children. 
but and I didn't ever imagine that I would be would become a single mother. But things went wrong, and it, however right you can think it is to leave, and that ended. You do feel a failure, and it was very difficult. But you have to, I think, probably. You, you can't stay miserable for too long when you've got two little children and you've got to look after them and you've got to make their lives as as wonderful as you can. So that was my total sort of focus to do that. So so that all happened around the same time, your divorce, your separation, and, and also having to decide about your singing career. Yes, yes. I knew that I wanted to look after my children. That was the most important thing because it's such... Well, you'd have to have family who were living nearby. And I was initially, my parents, obviously all my family, very supportive and wonderful, but they were in the UK. So it's, I just didn't, I, I couldn't imagine how it would have worked. So, but it is weird because you, it's almost as if you lose your identity for a time when you stop doing something because I was an opera singer and suddenly you're not. And it's, it takes you quite a while to get used to that. And how did you, what did you do having lost that part of you? How did you reinvent yourself? I, you have to channel your creativity into other things. So I, yes, I, I started writing and, and writing also educational books for publishers initially and also my own creative writing. So, and doing as much with the, ch my, the children as possible. I think they, that was, again, very important and to make sure that they flourished so, so I think it was a combination of all of that. And really, that takes up all your time and energy. So, <laughs> so there wasn't much, much left for any wallowing. They were five and three. So they were quite young. And so, so it was, it was very important to me that, that they, that, that they were happy. And I wanted them to be happy. So I sort of tried any sort of tap movements of misery. I tried to do that when they were asleep. <laughs> But that was quite a difficult thing to do, to have all that going on and yeah. to try and put on a brave face and a happy face for your children. And over time, now that they're grown up and they've yeah. got lives of their own. We've, we've spoken about it all and because it's quite different when sort of years go by, they're grown up and you can then talk about it in a very gentle way. And, and, and also they see their father and that's wonderful. And so, yes, I, it is very important to, to discuss that. Mm. And also to maintain, to help them maintain the relationship with their father. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. So, and I do think it's very important that children have a relationship with both parents. And yes, and I've, gosh, I've moved on completely. It's not, I, it's fine. I, I chat to him. <laughs> so there's no problem at all. Yeah. But uh, which again, I think is important. I think you have to mend everything and move on. And I think that's a, that's lovely because I think one, one can go through really dark patches and, and the reasons that people break up are so multifold and I'm speaking from my own experience of a split up and don't like to think back on the way that I behaved it's all horrible and then one emerges we w were finally able to part with great respect and fondness and looking back at the time that we had together as a something that was really precious to, to us. So it, it's, a, it's this wallowing is actually quite good, but then also <laughs> time limit on it yes. is also good. Yes, exactly. Because yes, but, And also because you've got to make the most of life. And, and I, as I've always said, it, life changes and you set out doing one thing, then you end up doing another, then 
you might go in a different direction. That's the joy of it. And you just learn from everything that's happened and you learn from your mistakes and you just move on. I like that image of sort of going with whatever life brings you at the moment, because I'm very aware as a, an, a, a, with my anxiety that sometimes when it manifests, the way that I control it is to be controlling, is to kind of go, right, this is what I set out to do and I'm going to do it. Because if I don't do it, oh my God, my life is falling apart. Yeah. And that's not it's been good in many ways because I'm very efficient, I'm very organised, all those positive traits of being controlling, but then the, yeah. the negative trait of being over-controlling and control, trying to control other people and trying a bit like King Canute, trying to control the tide, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so it's a kind of finding the right path through this yeah. and being able to enjoy life, as you say, for what it brings you. It's very, really important, I think, to enjoy life and to 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 wake up each day. And and I know people speak about mindfulness, but it is important to go for a walk and just to look outside. And so, yeah, so that's that does help, I think, with any anxiety. <laughs> so, so looking back at, at your life and our conversation, do you have any final thoughts to share with our listeners on your experience of anxiety? I think that you have got to, if you're worried about anything, I don't know, you've got an interview coming up or you've got a, you've got to speak in front of a lot of people or whatever it could be. I think before that, you've got to look in the mirror and you've got to say to yourself, I am good. I can do this. And then you've got to take a deep breath and go out there. I think, Ooh, wow. <laughs> I'm just picturing in my mind suddenly you this image of walking onto sta onto the stage, yes. whatever st the stage of your life, the light shining, the yes. audience rising to their feet. You are good. Get out there. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> I love it. Jane Kamak, thank you so much for coming onto the Anxiety Advantage podcast. It's been a pleasure. That was opera singer and writer Jane Kamak. You can find links to some of the things we talked about, as well as photos and credits on the show notes page. You can use the bit.ly short link, that's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, forward slash anxiety advantage. Or go to my website, tigerspirit.co.uk, and click through to the anxiety advantage. Today, we've had a look at performance anxiety from Jane's personal perspective. In other episodes, we have more personal stories. I chatted with River Oosley-Brown about things that make us anxious. And there's also the episode featuring Ellie Russell on OCD, anxiety and empathy. Subscribe or follow this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And these episodes will appear in your pod listening app as soon as they are published. I'm keen to share stories from people who have found ways to live positively with anxiety. It would be amazingly helpful for me and also our listeners to hear from you if you have a story about transforming anxiety for good or how you have discovered ways to thrive in your life. If you'd like to share your story, please email me at anxietyadvantage.uk at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. 
These podcasts come out of my personal experience and perspective, and I do not claim to speak for everyone who may be living with anxiety. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only. If you are affected by anything in these podcasts, please seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified professional. Today we talked about performance anxiety. Are there other expressions of anxiety you would like to hear about in these podcasts? Drop me a line with your ideas and let's see if we can feature some of them in future episodes. You can email me at anxietyadvantage.uk at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's free. New episodes will then pop into your podcast listening app as soon as they are published. I'm Yang Mei Ui. The website link again is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash anxiety advantage if you want to find the show notes page and other episodes. Or go to my website tigerspirit.co.uk and click through to the anxiety advantage. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram where I am at tigerspiritUK. There is also a dedicated Anxiety Advantage Twitter account at Anxiety Thriver. Or you can also simply Google the podcast, The Anxiety Advantage, and my name, Yang Mei Ui. Thank you for listening and see you again soon.